chapter 2, book of Revelation chapter 2, and I'd like to uh, read verses uh, 28 through, excuse me, 18 through 29 and make some comments. Now, those of you that were here last week, you heard some of these same comments, but uh, I've, I was asked to go over it again, and I, I found it a pleasure to go over it again. Uh, there's so much said in here. Verse 18 of the second chapter of the book of Revelation, and I might just preface this, if you will remember the very first verse of this book, and we're going to find this theme throughout the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. Now that's the theme of the book. It's the description and declaration and uh, statements of our Savior, the Lord Jesus And he is going to reveal himself in here in a manner that on every page, in every chapter, in all the verses, we're going to see the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in that first chapter, verse 1, the word revelation is where we get the word apocalypse. And if you take a survey among people today, they will say apocalypse means war or end of the world. And that word means enlightenment or revelation. That same word is used over in the book of Luke, a light to lighten, is the same word, book of Luke, chapter 2, a light to lighten the Gentiles. So this is our light, and we don't want to be people that look at this, and we're going to be prophets. We want to be able to look at this and say, that's what that means. We don't want to say, this is what it means. We want to look at it as it's fulfilled as it comes before us and say, that's what that means. That's the only job we have. We're not prophets when it comes to the book of Revelation. We're not going to prophesy when it comes to the book of Revelation. We're going to tell, not going to tell people that's what that means. It is the, the description, it is the person and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in our day, and in it, he shares emphatically that he is, will always be, and forever shall be the great victor. And every statement that he makes in here, he's a victor. Uh, he is the, the one that had victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And as he appears to these seven churches, which by no means means seven church ages, Because as we look at them, we find that as he was revealed to them, the composite is so valuable to us. The end product of all of those statements about himself as he wrote to these seven churches are so valuable to us, to the church. That is what keeps God's people going, is his word to us, his statements about himself. I have no use for a God that can't do. I have great admiration for a God who can do. And that's what we read about. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is not the Lord God Almost. He is going to do his work and ministry and be successful in every venture he does. Now, we'd just love to have that in an investor, wouldn't we? Every venture was successful. We'd love to have that. But we run into people, they're not successful in everything they do. We're not successful in everything we do, but he is. And so we we look to him and we desire to worship him. And every time he appears to a church, he reveals himself in somewhat different manner, not contradictory, but always complementary, 
always making an addition, and that's just what we do when we read to the Word of God. We're making additions complementary to the outstanding graciousness and sovereignty of Almighty God. Never once will we find our view of Him diminishes, but always the view that God gives of Himself will complement what we've already known, and we'll see Him as a larger, grander, greater, mightier God than we did yesterday. So He's just constantly raising Himself as he reveals himself to us, the door is bigger. The God is larger. His voice is more powerful. And he stirs his people to admire and to worship him like no one else can do. He stirs our heart to worship him. Now in this passage of scripture, we're dealing with a church. It's a church at Thyatira. It was a living body of people at one time. They had preaching there. They had a group of people that met together. And they had someone stand before them. In this passage of scripture, he is called the angel of the church of Thyatira. They had a pastor. And it was his responsibility to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, not deviate to the right hand or to the left hand, but constantly keep this message before the people. And it is the only message that will encourage God's people and give them a sense about today that he's still victorious even though the stock market fell. He's still in control even though there is a great war. He is an absolute monarch ruling and reigning and no one can say, what doest thou or move him one whit to the right hand or to the left hand. Now, as he reveals himself here to the church at Thyatira, it tells us in chapter 2, verse 18, the scriptures share this with regard to this great ministry of our Lord to his churches. Unto the angel or to the pastor of the church at Thyatira, write these things, saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Now, there isn't a believer in this world that does not delight in those words about the Lord Jesus. He's the Son of God. That was the confession of the Apostle Peter. And that confession is the confession of every believer in Christ Jesus. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the response that the Lord Jesus gave to that confession was, Peter, flesh and blood didn't show this to you. You didn't learn this out of a book. Now it may be written in a book, and a lot of books have written about that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But we'll never know it like we know it when he reveals it to us. We cannot get the sum and substance out of the words unless the Lord Jesus Christ reveals that truth to our heart. And the whole statement made here in all the Bible is that it is revealed truth. It is not garnered truth. It is not learned truth. It's not book truth. It's revealed truth. Now, he does use his word, and it is to our great advantage to be under the sound of the gospel. If people come to me, I don't know where I stand before the Lord. What's your advice for me, Norm? Get where you can hear the gospel. Right. Well, uh, I have things going on in my life, and I don't know what to do. What do you advise? Get under the sound of the gospel. Well, things are going real well. What do you advise? Get under the sound of the gospel. I mean, that's all there is. That's all we have. And the gospel is the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified for his people, a savior that saves, a redeemer that redeems, an advocate that actually advocates for us. 
And that's the Lord Jesus. He is the Son of God. And we notice in that passage also that he, he has a, eyes are like a flame of fire. This statement shares with us of the power of his omniscience. Now that's satisfying to the church to know that God knows. God knows everything. And as I mentioned last week, so often it's used, God knows about that and you're going to have to answer for it. My goodness, God knows what you're going through. God knows what he's revealed to you. God knows the trials and the tests. God knows the mountaintop that you're on. God knows. And it's a delight to have a God, as he's revealed in the scripture, that knows everything about all of his people and comforts them in that he knows about us. He knows the number of hair on our head. He knows everything about us. He knows the word of God that he's revealed to us. And he knows what we have need of before we ask. That's the God of this book. That's the God of heaven. That's the God that's the Savior of his people. And then it goes on in that same verse of Scripture. He has feet as likened to brass. There is a stability about God that we'll find nowhere else. He is stable. He is strong and stable and able. I've been asked to bring the Bible class this Sunday in trading for Sunday evening because Brother Mike can't be here. And I've just, I've just about decided to go to David and Goliath and how David was stable in the eye of great adversity. Didn't give an inch. And he's a picture of our Savior. Stable. Stand in the presence of his enemy and stand there without a movement. Now, that takes the grace of God, but God is stable in all his acts. I love what we found in the Old Testament with regard to this. I am God. I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. I change not. And I'll say that. That covers all bases. Don't ever come to me and say, well, he changed. He changed to answer my prayer. No, he didn't. <laughs> no. He didn't do that. He never changes. He's never changed. He never will change. He's not changeable. He's unchangeable. There's not even a shadow of turning about God. He is set his face as a flint towards Jerusalem. Is what we read with regard to the Lord Jesus. He knew exactly from the moment of his conception. In eternity past, in fact, he knew what was going to happen to him while he was on this earth. And he chose his disciples very particularly, just like he chose his people in Christ before the foundation of the world, and one of them was a devil, he said, that's going to betray him. He had someone already chosen, and Judas did it because he was chosen to do it. Now, this is the appearance that he gives to the church at Thyatira, and then he goes on and compliments their works in verse 19. I know thy works, your work of love, your charity, It's a great thing. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples when you have loved one for another. You don't have to say a word. Man, I have trouble with people. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Please. But by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. That's the display. That's what we have. And then he goes on to say, your service to God and to others there in the church, there in the community of Thyatira, your service to God, your faith in God, 
Uh, these things, as he says, I know all about it. I know your patience, your, your long-suffering. I know your works, what you've done. And your last is more than the first. Uh, that's the great way to go out. Boy, your works at the end are better than the works at the first. What you're doing now is more valuable than what you did when you're new Christian. That's the way to go out. You know, not a match, but go out as a bonfire. <laughs> That's what he's saying. You have progressed. You haven't given up. It, it's, it's hard to hear people say, I used to. I used to. Now, I know when we get along in years, there's some things we just can't do physically. But my goodness, that's not what God meant when we are serving Him. If we're going to depend on our physical acts to please God, we're already wrong. We're already wrong. All right, and then he goes on here. He says, I've got something against you, though. Verse 20, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest, thou permittest. Now, what we permit is just as important to watch as what we don't. What we allow, what we permit, is just as valuable as what we don't permit. And he said to this church at Thyatira, you have a problem right there in the middle. Now, it says that I have this against you. You have suffered us. That woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, I cannot find in this passage of Scripture that she was promoting sexual immorality. She was going far worse than that. I really have thought a lot about what Brother uh, Rupert Rivenbark said about more sinning going on Sunday morning in churches than ever went on Saturday night. And by that I mean people getting up and lying about God Sunday morning is far worse than whatever happened on Saturday night. Preachers standing up and lying about God and doing saying things about God that he never would say about himself is far worse. And so the spiritual application here is far more serious than what we read here. Whether she did this or not, that is for not us to find or to justify or to even discover. She may have been doing that, but in our day and time, what the problem is, is what she said there, or what is said there, you have seduced my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols, or you have caused them to look at these sacrifices as something more other than or beside Christ. Now there's the crime. There's the sin. That's the problem that has developed here is that she has led these people. Now, she's a prophetess or claims to be. And the first thing that we could say about that, it would be snuffed out immediately if the scriptures were followed. I suffer not a woman to teach nor usurp authority over the man. 
Now, if that had taken place right to begin with, they wouldn't have had the problem. But this has happened, and it's, they've permitted it. It's gone on. It's happened. Now, what are we going to do about it? Now, she is saying some things, and I just want to say this. True believers have no superstitions regarding days, hallowed places, religious relics, symbols, and signs, nor ancestors. True believers have no superstitions about these things. Christ is our Sabbath, our sin offering, our high priest, our altar, our mediator, our prophet, our priest, and our king. We have no superstitions about days or offerings or any of those things, hallowed places or religious relics or symbols or signs, nor ancestors. We don't fall for that. We're not given into that. We don't want that. That's competition. We don't want competition. God doesn't want competition. He said he's a jealous God and he'll not have or share his glory with anyone. So it, he's not in competition with anything. Now, this, this person that was there, she brought into the church through her teaching and through her example and other people bought into it. And if we looked at that today, we'd find out that there are several things that are almost relics, almost idols, almost hallowed, almost religious. And if we fall for it, there's a superstition about it. And we'd like to go over some of those things tonight. She taught, which was not right. And she led the people away from the simplicity that is found in the gospel. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, warned about this and encouraged that we never lose sight of the most valuable, most important. In fact, keep the main thing the main thing. There's only one main thing, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. We should have only time spent on Him. We have too little time. Does anybody have too much time? <laughs> you just got, you're overflowed with the amount of time that you have in your life and you're just kicked back. You know, I'm not there. <laughs> and there's so little time and so much about the Lord Jesus Christ that's revealed in His Word. We have no time for anything else. It takes too much time on everything else. So we have such little. Now notice here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul was sharing this. That there's, there's just a need to spend our time on this subject. And every book that he wrote was led to write by the Holy Spirit. Every time the issue came up of a problem, it was always a skewed view of the most valuable thing brought on the problem. If you have a skewed view of Christ, then the Lord's Supper is going to be a problem. You're going to have to discuss it. If you have a skewed view of end times, then the Lord Jesus Christ is the loser. If you have a skewed view of works, the Lord Jesus Christ is the loser. If you have a skewed view of all doctrine, the Lord Jesus Christ is the loser. And really, we're the loser. When everything else takes precedent over the Lord Jesus Christ, we're the loser. And He is left out. 
And this is what the Lord sent the Apostle Paul to warn us about. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I might present you a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And what's going to do that? Someone, Jezebel, is going to come in with someone that is equal or more important than the Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation. They're going to come in with an issue, a burning issue. They're going to come in with with a news item. They're going to come in with a political issue. They're going to come in with some issue. And it takes the simplicity out of the gospel. And before you know it, we're off on rabbit trails. And that skewed our view of Christ. And he's the loser in our mind. And in reality, we're the loser. He must have the preeminence. In fact, that's what the Bible says. In all things, he should have the preeminence. So in every factor of our life, he needs to be have the preeminence. Now, he is preeminent, and he's not going to succumb if we don't give in to his preeminence. But how blessed are a people that review Christ as him having all preeminence. He's in charge. He is the one that gave himself for me on all, all subjects. So as the Apostle Paul was used to write this, he shares with us that we, it is there in the church of Thyatira and it's possible today to be led away from the simplicity of the gospel. And then if you turn with me to the book of Jude, Jude had an interest in writing a letter and the Lord changed his, the need of the letter. Jude had an interest in writing about the common salvation You know why? He just loved it. He just loved the subject of our common salvation. How God, it's not common, but it is the same for all people, whether you're Eastern Bloc, whether you're American, African, whether you're Antarctican, Greenlander, wherever you are, it's the same gospel to save sinners that are the same in Adam. And the Lord interrupted him here and says, I had a, verse 3, Beloved, I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation. It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before ordained of this condemnation, ungodly men. Now this is the charge, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And what Jude was urged to write here was that turning the grace of God into nothing and making the Lord God small. And that's the charge against them. And they'll bring that in. Oh, he's not that way. He's not that way. Well, the Bible clearly says he is that way and then say he's not. And that's the charge that Jude was used to write here, and he goes on with some very uh, tremendous statements that are for us to review because the whole goal of the Lord Jesus Christ is to present us spotless. Now, what are some of the things that Jezebel was teaching and 
as it says there, they were eating things offered to idols, representing the idol. This, this what they were eating was representing the blessing of that idol. Now, an idol is an object of worship. An object of worship. And if we have any idol besides the Lord Jesus Christ, we have another gospel. He is the only object of worship. I'm reminded of over there, and we're going to get to it eventually in 2 Kings chapter 18, where King Hezekiah came to the scene, and he started tearing down the groves where people were worshiping, and lo and behold, he found a brazen serpent that these Jews had put up and were offering incense to it. Now that brazen serpent had been part of their history for a long time. It was a serpent that God ordered Moses to make and put on a pole. And the Lord Jesus Christ used this as an illustration of himself. And this brazen serpent, there were serpents all over biting people. And God told Moses, you make a brazen serpent, put it up on a pole, and when people look, they shall be healed. Now, oh my goodness. There's a whole bunch of people healed, and some people says, you know what we ought to do with this? We ought to set it aside. This will be so valuable. And in the process of time, they made an idol out of it, and King Hezekiah came along, and he just beat it to a pulp and threw it away. And I can just hear a bunch of those Jews go, Oh my goodness. God ordered that built, and he destroyed it. Well, under orders of God, because it had become an object of worship. Now, pastor was told one time, you've made Jesus an idol. And he complimented that person by saying, that's the grandest compliment a preacher could ever hear, because an idol is an object of worship, and if Jesus Christ is my object of worship, then God's been successful with me. Now, what are some of the objects of worship that Jezebel could have brought up in this? Because they are issues in our day, and they could be issues brought in, and we have to be on guard and suppress them, put them back. Sometimes the best thing I have found out is just be silent. (laughs) Someone, I would like to do, and I just am silent. I don't have anything to say. Well, they get the hint. We don't need it. Okay. All right. We'll go on. What is this? Representing objects of worship, but Christ. And the moment we follow these objects of worship, we have left off worshiping Christ. And if we've left off 5%, that's still to our shame. If we've left off two and a half percent, it's still to our shame. What is important besides Christ is to our shame. Now, one of the things that could have happened here was they took an unscriptural view of Sunday. Now, I I love Sundays. I love meeting. I love getting together. I love getting together with my friends and my family. 
I love getting together and hearing the word of God. I love getting together, but we're not superstitious about the day. The day Sunday, the first day of the week, is the day the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But he never once instructed anybody in the scriptures to ever use that as a day to worship. Now, we worship God. If God purposed to have every one of his people work on Sunday, then let's get together on Monday. I believe she was having a problem. We have set up such a sanctimonious view about this day. And I mentioned last week about that fellow up in Montana. He had such a view of Sunday that when it came to carrying a box of pipe fittings that he needed, he couldn't do it, so he had to have his son-in-law do it and carry it to the trunk of his car. We can just worship Sunday to the point we've lost all point of view about Christ. Now, I think as long as we can, it is a good day to worship. It's traditional to worship on Sunday. But if you don't worship on Monday, you're missing a good opportunity. And if you don't worship on Tuesday, you're missing a good opportunity. Monday through Saturday are all opportunities to worship God. And there's never been anything said in the scriptures about you have to worship on this day. Now, we go to the Old Testament, they had to worship on the Sabbath, but we find the conclusion of that is Christ is our Sabbath. It was an illustration, a point that God was making in the law. Christ is our Sabbath, our rest. Now, there's not a believer in all of God's creation that doesn't rest in Christ. He makes us to lie down in green pastures. Now, another thing that could have been there is an unscriptural view of a building. They went through a building program there in Thyatira, and I'll tell you what, their whole attitude changed. And now they have an object of worship. I have to compliment you. I appreciate more than you'll ever know your patience with our children. I've said this a hundred times if I've said it once. I want this place to be a place where our children enjoy coming. And if we turn this place into an object of worship, before you know it, we're imposing on our children. Now, the greatest respect that our children show is during the services. They're learning to be quiet. That's the greatest respect that they could ever give. And once in a while after services, they do a little running. And if you have a problem with it, don't bring your coffee in here. I'm serious. I don't want to impose on them. Now, this is a nice place. It's so much better than the place we had. (laughs) If you were there, you know it. This is a nice place. And it is incumbent upon us to take care of it. But it is not an object of worship. It's not a temple. It's not a tabernacle. It's It's a place out of the sun. It's out of the wind. It's out of the rain. It's out of the snow but it is a place where we assemble together and we don't come through that door saying, oh my goodness, now we're in holy ground. When you step before Christ, you're in holy ground. 
but not in this building. Now, we want to worship him here. We want to worship him in spirit and in truth, but it is not a pl- object of worship. And if she did that, she caused those people to commit spiritual fornication and get their eyes off the Lord Jesus Christ. There could have been an unscriptural view. We find this at uh, Corinth, an unscriptural view of the ordinances. Oh, my. It almost gets to the point in some places that you want to carry a platter around underneath the ordinance so you don't drop any. My goodness. It's representative. It's pictorial. It's the menu with the beautiful picture on it, but the reality is in the person of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The thief on the cross never had the opportunity for any ordinance, and the Lord Jesus Christ spoke to him, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now they are wonderful, and they are commanded. My goodness, if you've ever been saved by the grace of God and never followed him in the waters of baptism, you should. And if you've never taken the opportunity, if you know Christ as your Savior, of taking the supper, you should, because they're commanded. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. But once you turn it into a spiritual thing, and once you turn it into a hallowed thing, and once you turn it into an idol, you've missed the point. And and Jezebel could have been doing that in the church at Thyatira and having it permitted by the pastor and the rest of the people. And the Lord says, I want it straightened up because it is not right. I am due all your worship. Now, one of the other things that we find, maybe she had gathered together a group of men and caused them to assume the office of a deacon. I was amazed as I was looking at this this afternoon in the book of of uh, Timothy and Titus, in one of them says, let them use the office of a deacon, and the other one, they that have used the office of a deacon, is translated, that entire phrase is translated from one word. I'm convinced that when King James had this Bible translated, that this office was so entrenched in the recognized church that they had to put that in because the word that we find translated is used in other places and it's translated one word, ministered. Ministered or to serve in all the rest of the book. Now, who are the deacons and who are the deaconesses, if I can say that? Every believer in Christ Jesus are his servants. And once you make an office out of it and elevate people, the Lord Jesus Christ said, in my church, it will not be so. I will not have this. I will not have big eyes and little U's. I will not have elevated positions. I will not have that. The Lord Jesus Christ is the commander-in-chief. He is the master. He is the teacher. He's the prophet, priest, and king. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And everyone else bows before him. And there is no elevated positions. There could have been a view, a poor view, an unscriptural view. They have made their pastor, in some people's minds, a priest. Oh, my goodness. You'll be glad to know that several people have called about the pews that we have in storage. One of the most interesting one was a lady called and she was going to have to talk to her priest. Well, I didn't want to get into it. 
They, I says, how many would you like? And they have a church here in town. How many would you like? Oh, four or five. We want them around the outside of the building for the elderly people. The rest of us all stand. I says, whoa. <laughs> you know, the elevated position, my priest. Friends, if there's any priest in your life besides the Lord Jesus Christ, you have an unscriptural view of the priest. He is our high priest. And we are king priests under him. But if we ever need anything, it's going to have to go to him. Our prayers are addressed to him. Our desires are addressed to him. He is our prophet, priest, and king. And Jezebel may have had a hierarchical view, especially if she was part of the hierarchical, she'll have a hierarchical view of the priesthood. There are elevated positions there's the pastor, and then there's the head pastor, and then there's the superhead pastor, and then there's the archbishop, and then on and on it goes. So, don't fall. There's one pastor, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, and thank God, he gives us under pastors or under shepherds. He gives us his word, and we're just to dispense it. Paul said, I hear something in the church at Corinth. Some say I'm of Paul, and some say I'm of Apollos. You know what he says next? They're nothing. Paul and Apollos are nothing. One preacher said, they're nothing more than hose, garden hose, and hoses. One planted, another watered, and God gives the increase. He says, they're nothings. One preacher said it this way, I'm a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. So Jezebel may have had an unscriptural view about her pastor. One of the things that so often came up, and we find this in most of the books that the Apostle Paul was used to write, and that was an unscriptural view of the law. If I keep it, I am going to get in better with God. My goodness, we've already made several mistakes there. Number one, we can't keep it. Number two, we're not going to get in better with God with the law. The only thing that we can get in better with God is the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. That's the only way we can approach God Almighty is in the blood of Christ, in the sacrifice of His Son, in the person and work and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The unscriptural view of the law is, it's still in effect today. The Bible says when He came... He'll put it away. We are drawn to the gospel, not by the law. We're not driven to the gospel by the law. It is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. The law never brought anybody to Christ, never has, never will. The law is a schoolmaster. law was a, one that says, you're, you know what the law did? It damned. It damned. Every time it's brought up, it damns us. My goodness, we don't, and I'm thankful that the Lord God Almighty fulfilled the law, every jot and every tittle of it. And so if we have an unscriptural view of the law, we have an unscriptural view about God and an unscriptural view about His Word. <coughs> We're not justified by the law, never have been, never will be. We're justified by Christ. 
We may have had, or that she may have had, an unscriptural view about repentance and faith. This is one of the things that so commonly comes up. Oh, I repented towards God and had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who gave it to you? Well, I got it myself. Well, then you don't have it. That's only worldly repentance and faith. Repentance and faith comes from God. It's a gift of God. It's a gift of regeneration. When God regenerates his people, speaks life to them, creates new creation in them, raises from, from the cold slab of sin, he grants to us the gift of repentance and faith. He allows us to look to God as the offended party and say, I am sorry, God. And faith, he allows us by his work and ministry to be attached to him, our great high priest, and the root out of dry ground. It's a gift that God gives us in regeneration. If we say, I got saved because I repented and believed, is backwards. That's an idol. If you say, God regenerated me, and then by his grace I was able to repent and believe, hallelujah, it's the work and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Something else that could have just as been an easily, and we see it then, we see it through time, and we see it today, is that people that get hung up on parachurch organizations. The church isn't getting the job done, so I'll support this other group, this group that's helping God be successful. My goodness, all kinds of groups are out there, and the first thing they want is in your wallet. Guarantee, they want your dollar. They have to get this job done for Jesus. And the only way it can get done is if you send in your dollar or $20 or $100 or $500 or $10,000 and don't be mistaken, people are doing it. Using these parachurch organizations to make God successful. You know what? He only uses His church. Is saved people in the declaration of the gospel of Christ. And these people that are doing that have one goal in mind. Me. Me. I'm going to become important. I'm going to be remembered for this work. What in the world? You want to be remembered for your work? Remember for your work? By who? Jesus said to a whole group of Pharisees, you have your reward right here and right now. We don't want to be remembered by people. My goodness, I want, as Paul did, I want him to be remembered. I want him to be honored. What did John the Baptist say? He must increase and I must what? Decrease. He... Oh, may we keep it that way. May we keep it that way. Well, as, as this statement, going back to the book of Revelation here in uh, chapter 2, in verse 21, I gave her space to repent for her fornication, and she repented not. That woman did not realize how fortunate, and I hate to use that word fortunate, how blessed she was 
that God gave her that opportunity. And how did he give her that opportunity? That preacher in that pulpit where she attended kept preaching the gospel. That was her only hope. That's her only deliverance. That's her only means of repentance is that that preacher continued in that pulpit in Thyatira preaching Christ and Him crucified. Paul said we preach none other thing than Christ and Him crucified. We shall not to declare the whole counsel of God or all the counsel of God continue to preach Christ. What did that do? If that woman was ever going to come out of that pit that she was in, that's the only thing that would do it was preaching Christ and Him crucified. And finally, by grace of God, we could pray and hope she finally got struck by God and said, Oh my goodness, look what I've done. I've caused all these people to take their eyes off the most important one, the Lord Jesus. The gospel continuously shares with us the most important one, the Lord Jesus. Does not give room to take our eyes off of him. One whit, I press towards the mark of the high calling in Christ Jesus, Apostle Paul says that, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection. That I, It just continuously comes out of the Apostle Paul what was the most important thing to him. And he is a representative of all the church. The most valuable, most important thing to all of God's people is the person Christ Jesus. And this, tr- this group says, I gave her space to repent in verse 21 of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I'll kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I'll give unto every one of you according to your works. What's going to happen? Uh, The church of Smyrna is going to hear about this. Church of Philadelphia will hear about this. What happened when, uh, there in the book of Acts, what's the two? They sold a piece of property in Ananias and Sapphira. What's the final words about that? Great fear fell on the church. (laughs) Great reverence. Great awe view of God fell on the church. The churches are going to hear about this. And you know what it's going to do? God is in charge. He hasn't abdicated. He's still sovereign king, ruler of all, and he will have his way. It will not be thwarted. No man can say, what doest thou? No man can provoke him that way. So it goes on here to say, in conclusion, in the uh, second chapter, says... uh, but that which, verse 23, but that which ye have already hold fast till I come, he that overcometh and keepeth my words into end, to the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I uh, received of my father. And I'll give him the morning star. That's the Lord Jesus. I'll give him the morning star. Give them. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Again, I want to reemphasize, true believers have no superstitions regarding days, hallowed places, religious relics, 
symbols and signs nor ancestors. I think there's four times in First and Second Timothy and Titus. Don't get involved with questions that gendereth strife. Stay away. Stay away. Can you just hear Jezebel? Now, what do you think, brother, about the law? Don't you think we should keep it? Oh, my goodness. We're dealing with an issue here that's far bigger than that statement. The issue is, let's preach Christ and Him crucified and hope to God, pray to God, He will cleanse your heart because this is not in the law. Christ is our Sabbath, our sin offering, our high priest. He's our altar. I've had people say, you don't ever ask anybody to come down to the altar. Oh, yes, I do. In every message, go to Christ. Go to Christ. Come to Christ. Go to Christ. He is our altar. It's not a piece of wood in front of the building. My goodness. That's where cattle were offered. Sheep and goats on the altar. He is our altar. He is our sacrifice. He's our mediator. He's our prophet. He's our priest. He's our king. Flee to Christ. Go to Christ. He's the only one that we can have as an idol and go home and say, thank God. He is my object of worship. And he is our object of worship. If we have him in our mind and thought, we just don't have the time for everything else. And you know how much trouble that will save us? Lots of trouble. If we have him as our object of worship. We won't get to reprimands. We'll get to compliments. And I love compliments better than reprimands, don't you? (laughs) So, judgment must begin at the house of the Lord, though. That's what it said. And if the saints scarcely be saved, what shall the unrighteous do? That preacher's dad, he and... He and his son argued all the time over the gospel. And the preacher's dad finally got to the end of his road. He's in the winter of his life. He's getting ready to die. In his last words, Oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? You know what he said? In essence, son, you've been right all along. The gospel is a gospel of free grace in Christ. It's not a gospel of works.